I'm Alan Clark, and you're listening to The Photo Untaken, stories from outside the frame. This episode with Michael Greco is going to be about your ideas and how you need to bring powerful ideas to what you're doing and then the protection of those ideas. He is the type of photographer that most of us look up to in that he was one of the first guys to come up with a lot of these like visual things that we used to do, tricks and amazing technique, sometimes to make things look more sensational, like he did with the X-Files photography back in the day. But the thing that Michael's known for is light and bending light. In fact, I call him our light bender for this show. He's a wonderful person who loves to laugh, who loves to teach, who loves to not just support, but just be a part of the photography community. And that's one of the things I love the best about Michael Greco. He's out of L.A. He started in New York, though, in his early days. He has two books that I bought back in the day. One of them was called Lighting in the Dramatic Portrait, The Art of Celebrity and Editorial Photography. And the other one was called The Art of Portrait Photography, Creative Lighting Techniques and Strategies. I bought both of these books. And the first one, Lighting in the Dramatic Portrait, was just... I don't know about life-changing, but it was definitely career-changing, game-changing for me. And that's kind of how I got to know him first, was through his books, through some of his photography. On the show today, he just goes into how he got started, some of the things that he found out and figured out along the way. And then more importantly, as we finish the podcast, he talks about protection, copyrights, things that we need to know about as photographers and what we can do to protect us as creators. It's a really exciting episode today where we just go into some of the nuts and bolts of photography, but also some of the things that can you know, help you figure out how you can make a difference in your work and just kind of separate from the pack. So let's go back. Let's start from the very, very beginning when you started in New York. I was born in the Bronx in New York, and I grew up in Westchester County. What thought crossed your mind? that at some point you were going to be a photographer? For me, I learned the darkroom in summer camp. It wasn't about the camera. It was actually about learning that you can put this piece of paper in an enlarger and have this magical thing happen and a print come out. And that was like just totally cool. Hmm. Now, the type of music you were listening to then, what was Michael Greco listening to back then? Man, you know, my Facebook age is not really my real chronological age, so I'm going to date myself if I tell you that. That's okay. <laughs> it doesn't matter. The music of the times, you know, it was when I was a kid in summer camp, it was the early 70s, and I was probably listening to, I don't know, Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young, and Santana, and Joni Mitchell, and Bob Dylan, and Jimi Hendrix. Jimi Hendrix and Bob Dylan were my big biggies. Yeah. How cool was it to get to work with David Crosby then? Uh, it was really cool. That was really totally amazing. And he's such a nut in a good way. <laughs> I really like David. Yeah? Oh, yeah. Have you guys hung out since? Well, my ex-wife used to be able to get high-value seats for the Laker games, and I walk into his house to shoot him, and he's screaming at the television. I'm like, what the fuck? <laughs> and he's like, the Lakers, they're losing. They're losing. I'm like, I thought you grew up in San Francisco. He goes, no, I grew up here, and I love them. I said, have you ever been to a game? He goes, no. So subsequently, I took him and his wife and then him and his son to at least two uh, Laker games. Wow. Yeah, that was good. Really good. Yeah, it was. That's very good. Yeah. So let's go back again to New York. It's well known that you started as a photojournalist. And so what led you to that path? Well, you know, when you're 18 years old and you enter college, you think you know everything. I've been interested in photography and studying photography. And I learned the darkroom at 13. I had a camera. I would shoot. I took college classes in my senior year of high school with two fine art photographers at SUNY Purchase. I grew up in Hartsdale, which is near White Plains, and that's near Purchase, New York, where the state university is. And there were two very renowned teachers there. So I worked with both of those teachers. And then I entered college and thought, well, gee, I know everything. You know, I used to study the Time Life books. I'd be up late looking at the pictures and the photographers and Bresson and, you know, Bruce Davidson and just all the greats, you know, Avedon and Penn. Right. Yeah. And so I did know a lot, 
but I didn't know everything. And then I went to the school of communications. I didn't know what I was going to study. I thought I might study film to learn a little something tangential. And I got hooked up into a photojournalism course and that was it. You know, my parents were very old world, middle to upper middle class parents, but very protective Italian. And I would have to like fight to go into the city and go to the Museum of Modern Art and to listen to music. I I listened to a lot of jazz as a kid also. So I would go to the Village Vanguard and Sweet Basil's and I'd go to different concerts in the city, but I'd go to the Museum of Modern Art all the time. And so when I entered college, you know, I had a general knowledge and interest but this photojournalism thing was like, wow, you could see the world. It was like joining the Navy, hmm. you know, join the Navy, see the world. Yeah. And that part of it from a kid's perspective who grew up in suburban New York was really interesting to me. So I did that. And then, of course, that wasn't where my heart was. You know, that wasn't what interests me creatively. In high school, I had photographed my friends and done a lot of portraits and sort of formal portraits. And I really loved portraiture. So I started for the Associated Press. While I was shooting for the Associated Press, I was a club kid. So I have a new book coming out in October called, the title's new, Punk Post-Punk New Wave, On Stage, Backstage, and In Your Face. Wow. That's coming out with Abrams in October for a Christmas book. I had these two lives. I was this club kid, sex, drugs, and rock and roll. During the day, I'd work for the Associated Press. The photographers at the Associated Press and my picture editor would kick my ass. I really learned a lot. And then I got a staff job at the Boston Herald and sort of gave up the nightlife because I really wanted to do well there. And then after a few years there, I had outshot Ken Reagan and Mike Fuller on the Maria Shriver and Carolyn Kennedy weddings and the associate director of photography, like the second in charge, Beth Filler said, I'll give you a job. It wasn't really a staff job, but it was you're working full time. You're working all the time for people magazine. So I'll give you a job if you leave the paper. So I literally (laughs) called her up one day and said, I'm moving to LA and I'm leaving the paper. So there you go. And I did that for, a number of years and realized that they had me do photojournalism because that's what I had excelled in. But after a while, it wasn't where my heart was. And it even meant not shooting for People Magazine anymore. Hmm. It even meant MC Martin, who was the picture editor at the time, was like, your photojournalism is so good. Why do you want to do portraiture? All our shooters do portraiture. I have enough people to shoot covers. I need good photojournalists. Hmm. But it's like, you don't want to do something that your heart's not into. You know what I mean? Well, how did you know that, though? How did you know that doing what you were doing and how long you had done it just wasn't the thing? Like, what told you that? I didn't have the core interests. I wasn't a concerned photographer trying to save the world. Yeah. I wasn't trying to capture a moment. I would go to events and create the way they should have set it up, what should happen. Like, I would go to news events and my head would explode with ideas of how this should have been better. And mm. wouldn't it be great if some news event happened now and someone gets into a fight? And, you know, wouldn't that make a great picture in the next day's paper? And, <laughs> you know, and when, <laughs> so it's like I sort of wanted to take control of my world and think, well, why don't I create scenarios? You know, Annie Leibovitz was just getting her juice on then. The scenarios that she was creating for Rolling Stone were just, you know, it was the late 70s, early 80s. They were just being seen. And I was like, well, why don't I come up with ideas and creative things that are a creative outlet for me rather than hoping something happens? Yeah, it seems like maybe the first part was observant. And then you were like, I'm not an observer. I'm kind of an instigator, you know? Yeah, exactly. I'm definitely an instigator. (laughs) (laughs) And that's okay, you know, but you had to figure that out. How old were you when you started figuring that out? I did photojournalism for about 13 years. Yeah. And I probably knew within 10 of those years, so probably 88, 87, when I moved to L.A. When I moved to L.A. for People Magazine, I sort of knew that I didn't want to be their news photographer covering events and shooting picture stories. I knew that ultimately I wanted to move towards creative portraiture really yeah you know that's what it is for me
there was an agency called Onyx. You know, the agency was bought. They had all these shishi portrait photographers, and that was like endemic of what I wanted to do, really. Hmm. So you kind of took what you learned from photojournalism and kind of maybe added that to portraits. Oh, yeah, for sure. I'm a storyteller, and that absolutely came from working for a newspaper and working for the Associated Press. When I went to journalism school at Boston University, and, you know, they talk about the who, what, where, when, and why, and how all of them need to be in a photograph, if you can. Yeah. The when is usually, like, part of the caption, but the who, what, and where have to be there, and they should add up to the why. So if you're talking to a young person who's in school and trying to learn the things that we're learning, the things that you're talking about and we're talking about, that to me seems to be the first place to start because a lot of the things that they're doing just don't have any of those questions built into the photograph. I can tell you from portfolio reviews that I've done, I'm sure you've done, where you're just sitting there and you're not trying to rip them apart. You're not trying to tear them a new one. You're just like, hey, there's none of that here. And they're like, well, you know, what do you think of these photographs? And you're just like... I don't know, nothing. I don't think anything because there's no story. There's no who, what, when, where, why, none of that in this photo. And then I felt bad, but a part of me is like, if you want to do this, you're going to have to add that to it. And a part of me felt bad that part of me didn't. I was being honest with them. <laughs> you're tough. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, to me, that's the whole thing. You know, what's missing from this photograph? And I'm like, everything. There's nothing. I've got a close-up shot of two old people holding hands. Why did you crop it? Why did you do any of that? You know? And that's some of the things like that just irk me to no end when I'm looking at something. There's no story. I say a great photograph always makes you ask questions or have questions. And that to me is what was missing or is missing from a lot of photographs as you're flipping past them so callously these days, you know, especially. What's your opinion about some of those things that you added to your own photographs to make them interesting? I was on staff for the Boston Herald for five years. Right. So I took that storytelling on a newspaper level. And launched it more into a magazine level. And in magazines, not today, because believe it or not, they're not usually as creative as they used to be. You mm. know, magazines now are so concerned about readership. Right. But magazines could be lyrical. And the way you can tell a story could be not literal, right? For a newspaper, you have to tell the story in literal means, with signage, with props that talk about what someone does in a magazine you could build a set that's a fantasy that tells a story that's not so on the nose and it's more lyrical and it's more expressionistic and it's more artistic in general what were some of the first things that you created that you're not necessarily like really proud of but just something that you were like okay yeah this is where i'm headed so we're doing this book which is my punk and post-punk stuff as soon as I got here, I tried to make images that were artistic, even while I was shooting for People magazine. It was almost a dichotomy. You know, you do these sometimes formulaic images for People magazine, and then I'd go and have an assignment for Ray Gun. I have two shoots that are the last and oldest for the book. One is of Al Jorgensen from a band called Ministry. Mm -hmm. I shot it Hasselblad and I put like a gargoyle in his mouth, like a little one, and we did motion and I had him turn his head with a strobe on one side and a hot light on the other and he has two heads. And this other guy, Daniel Ash, from a band called Love and Rockets. Love and Rockets, man. I have not thought about them forever. Yeah. I did a portrait with him with a fire and flamethrower and a flame special effects thing in the studio. And immediately, as soon as I got here, I was looking to break the mold and it's kind of hard to break a mold once you've been taught a certain way you know what i mean mm, yeah my work definitely has a commerciality to it or that look to some degree because that was the 80s and 90s and where i came from did that help you kind of glide into figuring out the formula for hollywood yeah for sure you and I had mentioned in our pre-interview about the X-Files. I mean, that was probably my first and biggest assignment. It was interesting. The original pilot for the X-Files had no look, and it looked like it was shot in a gymnasium. Mm. It had no lighting look. It had no style. It wasn't visual. You could tell that Chris Carter, its creator and director, was a script guy. Yeah. You know, and they hadn't brought in a really talented director of photography for the pilot so they show me the pilot and i'm talk to my client and i'm like 
what do you want me to do? He goes, I want you to do what you do. And I just shown him a little portfolio of black and white, like artsy images, darkly lit, very moody. And he's like, I want you to do what you do. And I did it because a lot of photographers come from this place of fear where they're concerned about what their client's going to think and what it should look like and what their client wants. For me, that's not the answer. For me, the answer is, is to find the balance between your vision and your ideas and your style and what the job needs. So X-Files, instead of always coming from this place of fear, second-guessing myself, wondering if the client's going to like it, I really said, screw it, and I'm going to do what I do. Yeah. And that first publicity shoot was the one in the hallway, and we built that set with the metal walls and that shoot rocked man yeah it did to this day it rocked you know and then that set the tone we shot cross-process you know that was before digital we shot cross-processed film we did a whole bunch of stuff and to this day you know although the cross-processing might look a little dated those pictures still hold up yeah you know what explain to everybody because you know both of us shot i mean i shot the hell out of some cross-processing but explain to everybody that's listening that may have missed that what was cross-processing So cross-processing was a style in the late 80s and early 90s of an altered color. Remember, we didn't have digital, so we had to do everything in film medium. So what you would do is you would shoot either color negative and process it in transparency chemical. So the terms for film, for those of you who don't know who are listening, our wonderful audience here today, thank you for being with us. (laughs) The terms are C41, that was color negative film, and E6, which was transparency film, slide film. So you would either take transparency film and process it in C41, and you'd get a negative, or you would take C41 film and process it in E6 chemistry, and you would get a chrome. Now, the colors were like really screwed up unless you filtered them. Mm. So you would have all these crazy filter packets like, you know, you'd have to put some magenta and some warming so it wasn't so blue. It became very blue-green. So if you pulled that back, you actually got a decent skin tone out of it, and everything else was whacked. So if you, like, finessed it, it was pretty cool. That hallway shot for the X-Files was cross-processed. It was, and I think anybody from 35 and over knows exactly what we're talking about. They know the hallway. That just burned into the psyche of the American public, and that was such a huge thing. So afterwards, because I started doing this conceptual produced portraiture, then I started working a lot again. After I didn't work for People Magazine just to make my transition, then I worked for People Magazine a lot for their special issues, like their 50 most beautiful and Mm. 25 most intriguing. And so I shot Chris Carter for the 25 most intriguing. And I called my connection at Fox to set up the shoot. And my friend Richie, who was one of the picture editors and publicity there, he goes, you know, Chris doesn't like you. (laughs) I'm like, why doesn't Chris like me? He goes, he's kind of pissed off at you. I said, why would he be pissed off at me? I've never met him. He goes, after that shoot, the network made him give the look of the show based on your photography. Wow. So that was a huge compliment. It's a huge compliment. I'd rather him be mad at me. Uh, He was fine. He was? He was fine. In an old house, I had a black bottom pool, and we built a plexiglass platform, and he was walking on the water. Oh, cool. So he was fine. (laughs) (laughs) You made him walking on the water. If you make Chris Carter walk on the water, he's going to be okay with everything. He's going to be fine. Exactly. Any kind of Jesus comparison, he's going to be okay with that. <laughs> so you brought him back from that. So that's awesome. So tell me, did that shoot elevate you to anything, or did it put you into conversations for other things? It's very hard today to get noticed because there's so many outlets, and things get so fractionalized. Like, there's so many social media outlets, and there's Facebook and Instagram and Snapchat and print media. There's websites. There's so much information, but when you did things 20 years ago that got noticed, they got noticed. Yeah. That had more of an effect than I think it does now. Yeah. Now, if something goes viral, people just want to steal it. Yeah. They don't want to hire you and pay you real money. They just want to steal it. Right. (laughs) They just want to be thieves and they don't want to pay the consequences for it. 
But I think there is consequences and we've paid the price. Photographers have paid the price for it. We'll get into that in just a minute. So tell me what changed for you. Did anything change for you after this photo shoot with the X-Files? Did it kind of take you to a new level? Did it take you to some other place you wanted to be or no? Everything's a build, right? So I had this idea for a fashion shoot for the LA Times Sunday Magazine, and I did these weird fashion pictures of this jewelry. They were black and white, and we copper-toned the prints, and they had sloppy borders, and they were really artsy-fartsy. And then that job got me this huge job around the world for Business Week, and Business Week when they were around, didn't do huge jobs around the world. It was a special issue called The Entrepreneurs That Mattered. And I shot 12 entrepreneurs, two of them in England, the other 10 all around the U.S. Then that became a portfolio. Hmm. And I sent that out as a reprint from the magazine. Then that got me the X-Files job. And, you, you know, in a career, things just build on top of each other. Yeah. Were you saying that you used the reprint as a promotional piece? Is that what you were saying? I did. And that worked, and it totally worked. What else besides the X-Files thing did did that get you? Well, but that was an era where there aren't 8 million people sending promotional pieces. No. That was an era when sending a good promotional piece would get you work. It's just a little harder now. I don't know. I mean, I've had conversations with Jody from Rolling Stone and different people when I've asked them, you know, because to me it seems like the problem now, and for our photographers and commercial photographers that are listening, that – Getting ganged into an email with 10 other people, 10 other artists, whether they're illustrators or designers or photographers, being sent countless amounts of PDFs and types of stuff from agents and things like that, or what agents exist, you know, that are still around. Things like that don't necessarily work like they used to, or they don't work much at all. I've heard people, they say the second they get the email, they'll, yeah, mm, that looks good. Yeah, that person's great. And then just forget about it immediately. Actually, the old school promotional piece that you actually physically mail to somebody is starting to have a little bit of relevance again. I know Jody had said that, you know, hey, I mean, you know what? If somebody sends me a calendar or something that it looks nice, I'm, I am going to hang it up. That to me spoke a little bit more about maybe it's kind of full circle again to where maybe promotional pieces that are actually physically printed are working again, as opposed to PDFs that nobody pays attention to. And you have to think as a person trying to promote yourself, what works, what doesn't. I mean, the answer is everything. I mean, obviously, you have to do all the stuff, you know. But what would you say works for you these days or when you've talked at different conferences and, you know, what's the word on the street or whatever? What do you think actually physically works now? I think you have to do all of it. You have to have a website with great search engine optimization. You probably have to do email blasts, you know, doing a printed piece. But an agent explained this to me a long time ago. Ultimately, you have to have what the buyer wants. Yeah. (laughs) If you don't have what the buyer wants, you could be jumping up and down. And there's such a glut of photographers these days. You know, it used to take skill to expose film correctly and focus the camera and hold a medium format camera. And if you were shooting with a Hasselblad or a Fuji 680, which I used, everything's in reverse and you have to get used to that. And, you know, you used to know how to light and, you know, you couldn't fix everything in Photoshop if you screwed it all up. You used to have to have a certain skill level to be a a photographer that was successful. And the barrier now to entry is almost completely gone. Like the cameras do all the work for you. Yeah. And if it's messed up, you fix it in Photoshop. Yeah. You need to know very little to be able to create. So there's so many photographers that clients have the choice of whoever they want. And you're also, it's very hard to cut through all of that noise. It is. And so to me, that just tells you automatically that it's best for you to be different. It's best for you to have a different idea. And the idea is king. Would you say that? Yeah, for sure. For sure. I don't know about you, Michael, but I can remember back in the day, there was actually a little period because we looked at negatives so much. My brain actually reversed it. I could actually see negatives as positives. There was things your brain did. Remember, we just like things like that. that I, I don't know if I could ever explain that to a person. When I was at the newspaper or for the wire service, you would process film, take a loop, put it right on the film, and take a hole punch and put a notch in the negative and slip it right in the enlarger. You didn't make contact sheets. <laughs> That's crazy. That is just crazy. 
the generation before me when I was a newspaper photographer, before there were 35 millimeter cameras, were shooting speed graphlex. Mm. You couldn't focus that because it's a four by five piece of film. You were shooting a news event. You would have to guess the focus. And that was the skill they had. Wow. I didn't think about that. They would know what six feet were. They would know what 10 feet was. They would know. Yeah. I didn't even think about that. So that's the level that they were bringing to it. And they would just have to guess. And I've always wondered, shooters like Walter Yost, who, you know, worked for Sports Illustrated, and they manually focused with those long lenses, the action that is just as fast as it is today on manual, fully manual. That just blows me away. I've always thought about like, good Lord, man, I can't imagine. I mean, I guess we both would have done it. It would have been harder, but we would have done it. And that's just always intriguing to me how much more difficult it was to be a photographer, like you said, in the generation before us. For sure. But again, like even with 35 millimeter cameras, you had to expose them. There was no auto exposure. There was no auto focus. The barrier to entry right now where the camera does almost everything for you is pretty crazy. (laughs) It does allow for others to kind of get in that door, I would say, if you were to try to turn this into a positive. Because I think one of the complications for being a photographer is that the skill level does have to be very high. And so maybe somebody gets in the door that wouldn't have gotten in the door. And hopefully they learn how to use the camera and they do dive deep like we did. But let's go back to you. I want to talk more about you. I, I want to hear like what happened from there. Was there a point in L.A. where you were kind of the hot guy? I think that for me, I've always kept a level of like personal style and artistic nature to my work the really hot guys were the guys like james white who shot women really beautifully because that was the commodity in hollywood my dramatic lighting and hard light and shadow and i did a lot of editorial i was a hot guy in the editorial area but when it came to doing movie posters and shooting starlets and fashion shoots and that hard lighting didn't lend itself to the starlet thinking they were going to look good. Yeah. There was a little bit of danger in <laughs> using you. Exactly. And in retrospect, I'm okay with that. Yeah. It's kind of interesting to look at this body of work, the punk images. The overall project, which isn't the same as the book title, is called Days of Punk. And it's kind of interesting to look at these because they're that dark and moody and edgy. And they're the photojournalist version of my 90s black and white Hasselblad work. Mm. The funny thing is that Hasselblad work came from me shooting a Holga camera. I was asked to shoot portraits of John Singleton for LA Style Magazine. LA Style Magazine was this very hip and artsy broadsheet magazine. It was a large format. It wasn't quite broadsheet, but it was it was larger than most. And it was gorgeous. It always had creative photography in it. And I was asked to do this job. I've always liked the Diana camera. Mm, Yeah. The Holga was an early discovery for me where you can put a flash on. And I'm like, all right, I'm Mr. Strobe. I love overpowering the sun and making dark and moody. I call it myopic. I like that myopic look as if your eye is just tunneling in. Not to digress, but if you think about it, It's like a newspaper photograph where you're burning and dodging and you're burning Mm -hmm. the hand of God and you're focusing someone to the pinnacle of the action. Well, I did that with light. Mm -hmm. As a lecturer, as a speaker, you tend to dissect your career and look at what motivated you to do things. So I wound up doing that with light. Mm, Yeah. I thought, all right, I'll use this Holga with John Singleton. I put the strobe on and I did some really artsy pictures and they were beautiful. And the magazine flipped. And then an assignment came from a magazine called Volume, which became Vibe magazine. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So for the first issue, I was assigned to shoot two more African-American artists, LL Cool J And I forget the other guy's name. He was a writer. He was a big movie script writer. And they were like, we love that John Singleton picture. We're going to use your picture. Plus, we need two more portraits. And I was like, well, screw. I mean, that picture worked because it was dusk. The Holga is only like 60 at F8. You have no shutter speeds and ability to control it. What do I do? The shoot with LL Cool J was the middle of the day. So I figured out how to get that myopic look 
with the Hasselblad. Right. I had a compendium shade that slid in and out. Depending on the lens, I would put black camera tape around it. <laughs> I vignetted the edges like the Holga. Yeah. It didn't optically fall apart on the edges like the Holga, but then I made sure I lit it like I did that singleton picture. And then that became sort of my style in the 90s of these very artistic, very dramatic environmental or abstract or expressionistic portraits because I would use graphic elements for the backgrounds. And some information, like Singleton was shot with the watchtower behind him in South Central. Mm. LL Cool J was shot with this big film strip, which is a metal sculpture in front of the Culver City City Hall. I would use the environment to tell a little bit of a story or give a graphic nature to the picture, but I'd light the crap out of it. Yeah. I loved it, too. In fact, that's the first things that I ever saw of yours that I was familiar with you were those things, the shots of John. And then you kind of had to go back and do a little bit of history and the X-Files stuff came clear after that. But that was my first experience of what you did and how you shot things. And I loved it. It's funny because I've had kind of a similar background running simultaneously, maybe two years behind you, but just editorial in the same way. I, I worked for the Source magazine, so I shot a lot of hip hop and rap artists and stuff like that back then. And so just seeing these portraits actually had a huge effect on what I did. So thank you on that one. Was there another point where you were just like, you know what? It's time to move on. Let me do something else. What's new from Michael Greco? You know what I mean? Like, was there a point at which you felt like, okay, it's time to shake things up again? Well, to stay relevant, you're always shaking things up. Yeah. The black and white work that everyone loved and was willing to print in the 90s, they weren't willing to print in the 2000s. You know, as the internet age came, magazines were competing against the internet for readership, and they wanted to be more commercial, look more accessible not look too alternative and they were demanding more color less black and white so we moved there when color negative came in it was a little bit of a different style and some different techniques and we moved there i started directing and moved there now i'm working on this special project this book project with museum shows and all of that and you know you have to adapt you just have to adapt and figure out what you could do in photography that's going to allow you to pay the rent and keep you happy. I've always said that being objective about yourself is one of the toughest things to be as an artist. And that has a lot to do with adaptability because we get married to things we like. We get married to a style or at least a style that we think is ours and it's not, it's just something for the moment and it's going to move on. How hard is it to see past yourself sometimes? How do you know when it's time to move on? You know, how do you know this? I know that you do have to have that built in, but some people don't. Some people don't know when it's time to move on or to stop doing this certain style. Like, you know, what if you hadn't? Like, in other words, if you hadn't just kept shooting black and white when the times are changing. So how do you know when to move on sometimes? I think you know when it's not working. I think you know when you're not making money, when people aren't hiring you, when you have to be conscious of what's going on. You have to be conscious of the market around you and the environment around you. And if stuff is working, if you can't make the rent, you know, <laughs> something's up. Something's not working. <laughs> yeah, exactly. For every one of my guests that's come on the show, I've had, like, for instance, Chris Buck, and you know Chris, is the contrarian. He calls himself that. I call him that. And Sam Abel, I call him the poet photographer. So I'm trying to figure out the title for you. I thought about Lightbender. <laughs> oh, I like that. You like that? <laughs> I'm going to have that be your title. So Michael Greco, Lightbender. The subversive Lightbender. The subversive <laughs> Lightbender. It's like your superhero. We've got to come up with a character, too. We have to come up with a character and shoot you as that, you know? I absolutely love what you wrote about yourself on your About page, a few words from Michael. It's just funny. I was just like, golly, man, maybe you should write something for me. But I loved all the things that you said between the Master of Light and just talking about serving the community, the photography community, and all that type of stuff. What makes you want to help other photographers and, and the photography community so much? <laughs> because most of them can't help themselves. 
I'm sorry. God, that's true. But most of them can't help themselves. And I figure that ultimately, if we make the industry better, it helps everyone, including me. Yeah. There's an altruistic portion to it of giving back and wanting to help. But ultimately, if you can, you know, help make better legislation or do something to service people, ultimately, it'll teach the world not to steal. It'll make legislation, possibly like the Case Act and, you know, all these great trade organizations like NPPA that have been working so hard on it. It'll make our world better. Yeah. I love this world. My wife's a photographer. She's an amazing photographer. I love photography. I love photographers, although most of them can't help themselves. That's so funny you <laughs> said that. That's, why do you think I'm doing this podcast? I'm doing this podcast for the exact same damn reason. It's because we cannot help ourselves sometimes. The simplest thing is like for photographers to register their copyrights. Yeah. How many of them do it? Not very many. And I've gotten lazy, I have to admit, as of late. There's nothing more important. I'm successful now in defending my copyright and creating a revenue stream because I've spent 25 years registering my copyright. It's brought me to have this company, Image Defenders, and we do it for some very, very high-end photographers. It's a business that I make money on at the same time. But there's also a piece of it that if someone gets caught in a copyright infringement, maybe enough people know that they shouldn't be stealing work. They should be licensing it. Yeah. There is actually something wrong with it. I think that's the first thing. I think people think that there's nothing wrong with it just because it happens all the time. And that's not true. Yeah. And there's this attitude that because it's on the internet, it's okay. I'm like, what? No. This is where photographers can't help themselves. It's like they've been very slow to market to try to fix this. The music industry waited too long, but too long was 20 years ago. Yeah. In the past 15 years, they make sure they get every penny from every use. You know, if you hit the sample button to listen to a track on Amazon, ASCAP and BMI get a license for that. Wow. Even the 15-second sample of a song. I did not know that. Everything on the internet and on the radio, every little thing is monetized by all the music companies, the songwriters, the record labels. Photographers don't do that. Not only do I have Image Defenders, which is a private company that helps photographers who have registered their work with the U.S. Copyright Office find infringements and defend them and generate them income, but I started the American Society for Collective Rights Licensing, ASCRL, and we're trying to distribute funds that are collected around the world that don't go to U.S. photographers and illustrators because no one has figured out how to distribute them before. Yeah, No one has made this a priority. And for me, it's a priority. Why is money being collected for my copyright and other people's copyright that isn't going to the artists? Mm. You know what? While we're at it, take me through the steps of what I would do if I was going to try to register my work as a copyright. What would I do? And what are the best resources to do that? I'm actually going to do a video. Okay. That'll be a tutorial. We're talking about ASMP getting involved. Because it's probably a long conversation to have, my guess. I can't do this now. Because right. you got to walk through what's published, what's not published. You know, the copyright office doesn't make it easy with the forms they've added and everything else. Right. How about this? What if we did something together or... What if you do this video and then we obviously send links through the podcast and through the website and that type of stuff? Be amazing. I would love to do that with you because I honestly, I knew what you did in the old days, but um, I don't know what you do in the digital age as much. I mean, I've had to do it a couple of times and I've actually hired like you have done is hire other people to do it. And I can remember actually reading an article that you wrote, I think, from years ago about how to do it with film. And I remember you were doing it, having to you know put it on a light table. And do a gang either scan or you would take photographs of right. things sitting on a light table. And that was actually really helpful because you're able to kind of chew through a lot of the work that way. Right. And uh, that was something that I thought was amazing back in the day was just you talking about that. And I don't know how long. That's probably been 10 years since that article, maybe longer. Oh, no. That was maybe 20 years ago. Oh, my God. Yeah. I have to think about this all the time. I keep thinking it's 1995 or something. It's not, not at all. Okay. <laughs> I know. I'm just like, where have I been? My brain is not there. So here's what we'll do. We'll create a link or we'll do something together. And this way, because I do want people to know this 
It's very important. It's important to me. It's important to Michael. And it should be important to you as a listener. Just because you don't want to go through the process of getting it done and just because it's it happens all the time are not reasons to get this stuff taken care of. So we'll just figure this out and you'll you guys will hear about it later in the link. So from there, let's talk about where we're at with the case act. The case act. Yeah. The case act is in the Senate right now. It passed the House unanimously. It's being held up by one senator in Portland, Senator Wyden. From what I've heard, and this is, you know, hearsay, a former staffer who has worked for Google in the past, the staff in Senator Wyden's office has put a hold on the bill, which means it cannot move forward. Mm. So the infringers are trying to prevent artists from protecting their work. So what do we need to do about them? We need to look for the tweets about Senator Wyden and people need to get on Twitter. It's unconscionable. And I'm not even sure he knows what's going on with his staff, but it's unconscionable holding a bill because of their special interests and the special interests of either campaign supporters. It's a good piece of legislation. It's a fair piece of legislation. You can always opt out of it. You don't have to ever use the copyright small claims court, but there are still people who will object to any forward movement for photographers and artists if they can. And that's what's happening here. Well, if you live in the Portland area, that would be a good start. If anybody listening right now actually lives in the Portland area, you can always just float down to the office or call or send letters or emails. But we got to make something happen from this. We got to change this. I agree. And I know that all the organizations, ASMP, NPPA, the Graphic Artists Guild, they've all put a lot of effort and energy into making sure this bill will happen. PP of A, especially the Professional Photographers of America. So, yeah, you know, we don't want all that effort and energy to go to waste. Absolutely. Talk about this book that's coming out. I know this is something important to you, something that affected you early on and is still very important to you now a book that you've got coming out that's really interesting and sounds interesting. And I've watched some videos about this. Talk about it a little bit. I have a book coming out with Abrams in probably mid-October of next year. It's an unseen body of punk and post-punk new wave images. The images are happening. I look back at this work and I was being trained as a photojournalist during the day for the Associated Press. And I'm quite happy with these images. They make me feel warm and fuzzy inside. (laughs) And it was an interesting period of my life. Club kid, party boy. It was an interesting period of my life in general. And I'm really excited about it. We're probably going to have a show at Photo London. We're arranging gallery events and shows all around the world. You know, trying to make it a big noticed thing. So is there going to be some galleries and things like that that it will visit? And if so, how can I get one, you know, just like that will support the book or that will show some of the photos from the book or whatever? It'll be galleries and museums worldwide. Okay. There's a website, daysofpunk.com, which will have all the events. It'll have the next show. It'll have everything on it. Awesome. So basically coming to a town near you. Yeah. So on the Photo One Taken podcast, we always ask three questions, and we can either rapid fire this or you know spend a little bit of time on it or whatever. But I think you've already talked about this. But what photo shoot made you? What got you your start, or at least got you into different circles and the circles that you wanted to be in? The job that launched my career from a stylistic where I had a lot of people interested in the work, and was that Business Week article where I did twelve black and white portraits with the Hasselblad, where I made them look like the Holga. We put tape in the front, and we used little hot lights in places, and we lit them, you know, very dramatically, very artistically. And I told a story in people's environments with props, but it was this myopic, very artsy, sending that out to 2,000 clients. That launched a lot of work. It was shoots for Rolling Stone and major magazines. Yep. The second question is, what photo shoot got away from you or what photo got away from you? What was something that you were looking forward to 
excited about, and then it just didn't happen. The photo shoot that got away, the one that didn't happen, I take lessons from this. I was asked to shoot something for Fox, a big TV show for Fox, and it was supposed to happen at a particular time, and it wasn't confirmed, and I didn't have the shoot yet. The shoot wasn't locked in, and I turned down a shoot for the LA Times Sunday Magazine, which was a series of portraits of creative people in Los Angeles that helped launch Frank Ockenfeld's career when he moved from New York to Los Angeles. Now, Frank's an amazing photographer. He's a good friend of mine. Anything would have launched Frank Ockenfeld's career, but that certainly was the thing when he moved here that got a lot of attention. And I turned down a job. I didn't have the bird in the hand. So I let the bird in the hand go for the two in the bush, and I got nothing in the end. So that's the shoot that got away. That would have been like a big series of environmental portraits. Well, the third question, and to me it's always a very fun or very tense question, is what is a story that's just almost too crazy to believe? Something that happened on a photo shoot where you're just like, wow, and you don't have to say any names or anything like that, but just a photo shoot that was just amazing. But also, I can't believe that just happened. The most hard-to-believe story. (laughs) So I had an assignment for Esquire. It was a combination of portraits and sort of a photojournalist thing, which should have made me a little leery about it to begin with. But we went up to Mavericks, to Big Sur, and we were shooting one of the surf competitions to ride the big waves, the big wave surfers. And I brought two assistants with me. And long lenses and the plan was was to shoot the surfers and also then to do portraits of them as they came back after the day so on and so forth right so i got on the boat we all went out and what you realize what makes really amazing surf is really rough water (laughs) (laughs) oh boy and every time i would lift the lens up i was so nauseous even with dramamine which we took you know prophylactically right I was like dizzy, like dizzy nauseous, like almost fell over. I was like, I got to get off the boat. I take an assistant and we wrap up gear in plastic bags, put it on a backpack. They had these emergency jet skis (laughs) that were going to take us back. So I got on one. The assistant had the 300 millimeter F2.8 lens and the light meter. And the other assistant was already back on the ground setting up lights and stuff. I get there. By the time they get us in, it's almost dark and there's no portraits to be had. But the jet ski with the assistant and the gear crashes. The expert jet ski search and rescue woman who was doing the search and rescue, protecting everyone, hit a rock under the water. Oh, The jet ski goes down with all the gear. Thank God it was in plastic bags. The repair bill, things weren't totaled. They did need to be cleaned up. Yeah. But I never got a picture of anyone surfing. I never got really anything great out of that. So this is like <laughs> this is like the black cloud. It is. This is the worst thing I've heard. <laughs> Keep going. It's not the worst thing. No, no, no. It gets better. Oh, okay. It gets better. Oh. The magazine hates the story from the writer. <laughs> and they kill the whole thing. Oh. After I'm like beating myself up about what a crappy job I did. Yeah. And then the magazine loses all the film I sent them that I did send. (laughs) What are you kidding? That was the most amazing things I've ever shot in my life. You don't want your film lost. You know what I mean? It's like, so it was like, there was something so ill-fated about that day. Oh my God. (laughs) Everything was ill-fated about that day. Oh my God. That was my worst. And I hope I take the cake on that one. That's the worst that you could think of, is the gear going down. Hopefully nobody got hurt. No, no one got hurt. We're all good. So that's good. Well, you know my favorite thing, and we'll finish with this. I just love the last thing you say on your own about page, and it says, I go out every day with the intention of breaking visual rules and creating evocative cinematic images that inspire and you just kind of give an invitation. Let's connect for a light bending photo adventure together. And that's kind of what we went on today. And it was amazing. 
And you are my light bender, Michael Greco. Thanks for being on the podcast today. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you, audience. I really, really appreciate it. Really want to thank everyone. So thank you for listening. Thank you for the interest. Absolutely. Thanks for being here with us. Marcus DePaula here, the producer of the Photo Untaken podcast. I also wanted to thank you listeners for taking time to listen to our podcast and to add a huge thank you to Michael Greco for taking time to speak with us on this episode, giving us so much valuable insight from his extensive experience. You can go subscribe right now at daysofpunk.com and follow Michael Greco on social media to keep up to date on his new project that's coming out so you can see it as soon as it's available near you and order your own copy of his book. If you want to see more of Michael Greco's incredible light-bending work and connect with him, visit his website at michaelgreco.com. We have links to everything in the show notes for this episode at thephotoontaken.com, including some resources where you can learn more about the CASE Act that they talked about and how you can get involved to help get it passed so that more creatives can make a living doing what they love. Michael also mentioned his business called Image Defenders during the interview. If you are a professional photographer and would like to discover who is using your images and then get help recovering your fees from any unauthorized use of your photos, go to imagedefenders.com to see how Michael's team can help you recover that lost revenue. The music for this episode is by another local Nashville friend, Aaron Sprinkle. I'm Marcus DePaula for the Photo One Taken podcast, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>